Bart, I've asked you not to whistle that annoying tune. Yo, everybody, and welcome back once again to Simpsons is Greater Than, a Simpsons podcast with a current release schedule about as reliable as Bart in the future. As always, I'm your host, Warren, better known to some of you as Bart of Darkness. You might know me from my Simpsons collection over on Instagram or Twitter. Be honest, it's great, isn't it? Go ahead and say it's great if you want to. But if not, when you're done with this episode, do me a favor, head over there, check it out, scroll until you get tired of it, and let me know what you think. And speaking of doing something nice for me, if you like this podcast and you think, hey, Warren, I would like to do something nice for you, well, you can. You can buy me a coffee by going over to ko-fi.com slash bardofdarkness. That's K-O-F-I.com slash bardofdarkness. It would really mean a lot to me. I also really like coffee. So this week, I'm joined by Dan Graney. With his name on episodes like King Size Homer, Summer of Four Foot Two, Realty Bites, and Bart to the Future... Dan really breaks down the collaborative process of writing on a show like The Simpsons and puts a spotlight on some of the reasons he thinks the show is beautiful. Episode 54. Let's go. You should remember that I'm sufficiently obscure in The Simpsons. This may be the only recorded evidence that I existed in, in history. So my entire legacy to my my descendants or whatever come after is this. So it's on you. Hey, I, I'll take that, Dan. <laughs> I, I will definitely take that at any way I can get it. Um, well, so I, I do the intro and everything later. So, you know, we'll just kind of let this conversation roll in. Uh, and and I normally do like a little bit of a warm up. And what I'm going to bring up today is I saw, uh, I've seen on Twitter where you seem to hate people sharing their Wordle uh, score for the day. Uh elaborate on that a little bit because it is a little funny uh but do you enjoy wordle well i love wordle it's fun it's delightful i mean it is hangman but the idea that people are so oblivious to the fact that it is purely narcissism that is driving (laughs) this desire to show mommy your poop like is crazy like, how do these people not understand that this has no interest to other human beings? It's, it's, it's absolutely devoid of interest. And to me, it's like the purest version of, you know, which beetle are you? All those narcissism games that the Internet figured out people will play and share with each other. And But there usually needs to be enough of a pretext that there's some value in it or you're doing something or you've updated, you've added some content. This is no, look, <laughs> I did a thing. <laughs> it's gross. You know, it's embarrassed. I'm embarrassed that adults are doing it. Yeah. Well, it's funny too, because, you know, I, I'll share the wordle. Like I have a few friends that we all play yeah. wordle and, and we'll, well share, share them with my friends, you know, fine. Yeah. 
But Twitter is funny because you could just lie. Like if you actually thought people were impressed by it, you can right. just you can just change your score and be like, oh man, look, I get it on one or two every day. Uh, so it is pretty funny that people share them as if others are going to be like, wow, yeah, that's crazy. And sometimes the replies are the same way, you know? Right. It's also, you know, I don't know, it's disrespectful. You know, if you have a public platform and you're, you have a certain things that you talk about and then just to say, oh, and by the way, here's, here's my poop this morning. You know, it's like, why? You know, unfollow. <laughs> <laughs> My other pet peeve is very Bill Oakley specific. And it was, I felt frankly betrayed when he named a fish sandwich, the steamy sandwich of the year. And I was like, wait, Bill, I thought you were, I thought you were one of us. You know, <laughs> come on. We don't like fish. Fish is gross. You know, <laughs> like. You know, I watch Top Chef in week after week after week. They're doing, you know, fish, you know, uncooked fish dishes, pokes, and like, like who eats that stuff? You know, and and then you know, Bill, you know, he's defending the the person who eats a hamburger, you know, and a sandwich and French fries, things that people eat, and then to suddenly feel like you know the the fish witch, which was always a betrayal. To me, like whatever that happened at school or whatever, you see Bill siding with the fish, which, you know, <laughs> was, was disappointing. Truly incredible. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, so I actually don't eat meat. A lot of people that listen to the podcast know that. I don't eat a lot of meat, but I thought that Bill, you know, Bill does. Yeah. <laughs> I count him to eat it for me. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. And so I, you know, I, I, when I see people talk about like a fast food fish sandwich, that always is sort of a surprise to me because I, you know, even as a kid, even when I liked fish, that always seemed like the bottom of the barrel. Like the last place I wanted to eat fish uh, was from a fast food restaurant. It's like going to McDonald's for the salad. It's like, come on. Yeah. Why you are you know? doing that? Make a salad at home. It'll be better anyway. 100%. Yeah. McDonald's. Yeah. So it's only, he can, I love Bill. He can do what he wants, but. He's gone gravely wrong. He needs to change right away. Well, Bill, you you know if you're listening, you heard Dan. I mean, come on, like re, if if the fish sandwich is really that good, I'm you know I, I guess I can't argue with you because I'm not going to try it. But it seems like some people don't believe it, and Dan is one of those people. I think he's trying to be honest, but really, I don't know. I just fish fish wishes are gross. Um, but yeah, I don't. I eat burger now at this point probably on the 4th of July would be about it. It's like, okay, fine. You know, I still, I, yeah. So I think the, you know, what, as one's relationship with food evolves so as you go on. So bills did not. Bills did not. Bill's, <laughs> Bill's still eating the fish sandwiches apparently, or, or he's, he's getting into the fish sandwiches at, at this point in his life. Uh, well, Dan, the way I start every episode, uh, and, and this is sort of a sincere question. And I guess, you know, right now it's even more complicated than it might've been, you know, a couple of years ago, but how are you in your everyday life? Oh, I'm very well. Thank you. Um, you know, I mean, for history, this is late COVID, the end of COVID, the second end of COVID, maybe second of many. Yeah. Yeah. So we were, you know, it was essentially healthy for me because it involved essentially a monastic way of life. I'm single, let alone. And, you know, monks live a long time. It's a hel It's healthy to be a monk. You know, so, <laughs> you know, so I just got a lot of fresh air and did my thing. I know it's been a hardship for a lot of people, so I don't want to gloat too much right. about, you know, not having made the various, you know, built a life. 
the mistake that they made, you know, but uh, the absence of a life has uh, been very convenient. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think, you know, everyone is sort of learning, uh, you know, how to deal with it. I mean, a lot of places, you know, I, I live in Florida uh, and for, you know, I, well, I almost said for better or worse, I'll say for worse, Florida tends to pretend it doesn't exist. Uh, right. So, you know, we're going to, it's going to be something we're all learning to live with for a while. But, uh, you know, I'm always happy when I hear people are doing okay during it. And that's sort of the reason I ask, because, you know, things could have been worse for a lot of us. Things could have been worse for me. Uh, so, you know, I think it gives you some perspective. That's something I often say to that, but it gives people, you know, a different look. You know, I would say as a noted health expert, you know, the, <laughs> the thing that I feel is underappreciated for human health. I think it's gotten a little bit more appreciated in the age of the step counter, but is walking and being outdoors. Yeah. And, and, you know, I went through, you know, ups and downs in life like anybody. And um, I feel like walking the psycho, spiritual, physical benefits of walking are just undersold, you know? Totally. And so when, when, when things get stressful, just walk, you know, we're, everyone's out walking, especially in early COVID. And I think, you know, for me, that's, that's, some, it's magic. You know, walking yeah. is a little bit magic. So. You'd be, you'd be amazed what a good walk will do for you. There's a record store close to uh, where I live. Shout out to Tiger Records. James has been on the podcast and, uh, you know, I, that is a, something I really enjoy is going to get a coffee, walk into the record store. Like it just, it feels good to get out sometimes. So I agree with that. Yeah. It's wonderful. yeah, yeah. Super wonderful. Well, Dan, I want to focus on you uh, a little bit and I want to know up top before we get too into the Simpsons, obviously we're going to talk all about that. Uh, when did you realize that you were funny and what would you say some early influences on your sense of humor were? Well, you know, having been at the show all this time, I'm not sure I, get to call it, get count as funny. You know, I think I had something to contribute. I do think I had something to contribute, but there were, we had people for the comedy. <laughs> we had hilarious people. You know, we have, you know, we have Bill Oakley, we have George Meyer, we have great people. So I was able to participate and I think be helpful, sometimes coming from something that was common, but more just being you know, slightly of a, my own version of a misfit with my own particular perspective and access to grind that, you know, okay, we've got, we got funny covered. We got story covered. I guess we have some room for this. <laughs> <laughs> I had something to chip in. I was a chipper in it. Fair. Well, I mean, you know, don't, don't sell yourself short, Dan. I mean, before coming to the show, I mean, you, you know, you at Harvard, you were president of the Harvard Lampoon at one point, you know, you obviously were, you obviously, you know, were funny, uh, well before you got around those guys or, you know, you knew some of them at Harvard, I'm sure. Uh, but what I'm curious is, or I guess what I'm curious about is before you came to the show in season seven, uh, was writing for television, something you had ever considered doing? Were you interested in that prior to coming to the Simpsons. No, I think compared to most people on the Lampoon and most people here, I was extremely earnest and which is pretty unfunny attitude. Uh, so, you know, I had very earnest aspirations, you know, writers sort of way with a lot of that fear around that. But like, you know, if I could have been anybody, I would have wanted to be Tom Wolf. You, you know, like, okay, this is a person who's embraced America, gone into it, you know, and, and said something great and beautiful, like, you know, expressed it beautifully, but I didn't know how to do that. And certainly was afraid to fail at it. So I sort of sort of waffled around. I did work for USA Today, uh, which got me into a job that was not that far off that we did this 
when I was in college, we did a USA Today reached its fifth anniversary as we were coming to the end of our college years. My, I was coming to the end of my college year. And the Lampoon had a tradition of doing a big project. And so I asked around. I, I was elected president because I was not around. And they all, um, I had been in and out of school and they all hated each other. <laughs> and they weren't sure if they hated me. And so, yeah, they realized they did, but it was too late by the time they did. <laughs> and um, so, but I was given this responsibility to, oh, you're in charge. Well, okay, well, let's do a parody. I asked around people, there seemed to be an appetite for this USA Today. So we did that. It was successful financially. And I got to know the people at USA Today and got invited on this job to go around the country to all 50 states as the head of that the founder, a visionary guy named Al Newhart, who was like Steve Jobs of the World War II generation. Mm. Like, with a very different, he's like Rockford meets Steve Jobs. Wow. <laughs> like, like, like he, had, <laughs> he had an old school, did you ever see Jackie Brown? Oh, yeah. Like Robert, yeah, the Robert Forrester character meets Steve Jobs. Wow. Yeah, and, and a very impressive guy, also a bit of a tyrant. Uh, and But we went out in search of America called Buscapade USA. It was a 50-state tour. And I had this incredible job to be part of that, which is really a dream come true because I always wanted to be a guy who went in search of America. So here I was. Wow. You know, but but it did have the thing where we knew what we were going to find beforehand. Because like the joking inside joke was the mood is good. <laughs> <laughs> like that's what we're going to find people. Like we're looking for the mood, but don't overcomplicate it because the mood is good. <laughs> so <laughs> Anyway, I forget where I was going with all that, but that was that was my my orientation was towards that sort of serious searching for America sort of thing. And then the lampoon and comedy just were always so beautiful to me, you know, like like the I read as a kid the Board of the Rings parody that uh, Doug Kenny and a couple other people from that era did, and it literally was a magic moment, like falling in love. Wow, and. Um, so always there's a sense of this other realm that you can access through comedy. And so in the Lampoon was this magic place. But I didn't know TV comedy didn't seem to have anything to do with that until, you know, I went to law school, actually. And then I was watching people talking about the show, The Simpsons. And I remember watching, I think it must have been like it, the evil, the I forget his name now, the daredevil uh, character, <laughs> Lance Murdoch. Lance, Lance Murdoch. And... And they go, and Bart goes to see this, you know, a spectacle of trucks and destruction. And Lance Murdoch is going to jump over a tank of water. And there's a shark in the water. And then to make it even more scary, they put a lion in the tank with the shark. <laughs> and I kind of fell in love again at that moment when the lion was put into the tank with the water. It's like, this is, this is purely delightful, you know? And then that made the idea of maybe realize, oh, wait, you can, there's this special thing that can be done on TV. And I happen to be in this position where I know some people who are, who are part of that. And so, you know, I was very interested in being part of something like that. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really interesting too, because when I had Mike Scully on, uh, I believe he said that Bart the Daredevil was like the episode that made him love the show. Like before he yeah. even thought about working on it. Uh, I know that's a favorite of Wes Archer. I quote it, like when Bart, that was literally the moment, like my jaw dropped when they put that lion in there. And then, and then Bart goes to the hospital 
and he talks to Lance Murdoch. He's, you know, they, they leave him to get this straight talk from the daredevil who's <laughs> had all the bones broken. And he goes like, son, you know, a lot of, I hear you've taken an interest in death defiance. <laughs> How beautiful. It's a science. It's a field. And then like a lot of people are going to tell you not to or whatever. But the fact is bones heal, chicks dig scars. And America has the highest doctor to daredevil ratio in the world. <laughs> and like, come on. Like that honestly changed my relationship to America. Yeah. Like it made me see. And I think that I don't know who point of view if that was John Swartwelder or George Meyer or something. But this idea of embracing the machismo, like having a love of this machismo, this aspect of America that sometimes seems like, oh, my God, they're just so, so benighted. But then to realize that they're so great. That was very uh, touching. Yeah, it's it's really something, and it's it's really something to hear that from you. It's also, you know, so many people. Like I said, Mike Scully, Wes Archer, they all that episode very special to them. Uh, you know, yeah. Jay Kogan. I mean, they all talk about how that episode. You know, one of the funniest things. Uh, it was, if I may, I think it was very influential in the next era of American culture. Sure, because it changed America's relationship to the dumb part of America, like our, our spectacle, our, our, yeah. our, you know, it went, it just says, you know, we can affirm it and have fun with it at the same time. We don't need to be like, Oh, you know how like Bill Oakley in the fast food, you can, you can be above it and in it at the same, you can see the stupidity, but also love it and be part of it, you know, and they don't need to be like snobs or against it or slobs that are into it. You can be, a, there's a better way to relate to America that is like both affirmative and a little bit skeptical at the same time. That is, that is well said, Dan. And I actually really like that. And I do sort of see, you know, uh, watching people like Bill, I mean, there's a, a, a certain assumption about, you know, people that love fast food, but there is something, you know, even as someone who doesn't partake in very much of it, uh, you know, until we got like the impossible Whopper and things like that. <laughs> but, you know, I don't partake in a lot of it, but there is something to be said about looking at it and going, hey, I know what this is. I know why it's delicious because it's designed to be delicious because it's kind of trash. And there's something to be said about appreciating that. I do. I do enjoy that take. Right. And, it, and it's a it's a realm for pop cultural expression. Yeah. Like I remember, even though I was not invested in this stuff the way the bill was, I remember years ago before this all happened, I was thinking they ought to make square M&Ms like <laughs> <laughs> like they ought to experiment more with this thing and have more fun with it. And they did their own version of that where, you know, they embraced this creative experimental. So, yeah. You know, anyway, I so so that episode really changed both my view of America, you know, and uh, and I think it did other people. I think that if you look at things like those Geico ads or, or any number of ads, which are both dumb and warm and fun at the same time, that attitude, that take, you know, comes out of there, you know. Totally agree with that. I mean, I think, you know, you see the, you know, the whole reason for this podcast in a lot of ways is to talk about the cultural impact of it, but also talk about how, you know, in the same way, it's DNA is in everything. I mean, everything funny since it began, there's some Simpsons in there, even if it's not, you know, directly, it's influenced from something influenced right. by and so on. Right. And, and the Simpsons comes from other things, you know, from, from the vacation movies. It certainly shares a lot of DNA with the vacation vibe. Absolutely. Even if it didn't, even if it didn't come from them, it came out of the same 
point of view and, you know, National Lampoon before that. And something that nobody would ever think of but me. And I don't think it's, I don't think it had an influence on it, but I think it is related to it, which is um, Andy Warhol. And if you look at the Brillo pads or the soup cans or any of that stuff, the really interesting thing about that is the ambivalence about the presentation, you know, that it's kind of mocking yeah. the banality of these soup cans or the banality of the brilliant, but it's also celebrating it. Like if you look at Andy Warhol's soup cans, they are really good soup cans. Yeah. Like he did a good job. He didn't blow them off. And so like, if you look at like other artists, they would do depictions of American popular life in a sort of disparaging way. And Andy Warhol like, no, no, I'm giving I'm treating these soup cans, I'm giving them their respect. You know, so that's really great. I mean, I, you know, and I do think that's another great comparison. I mean, there is something very, you know, there's a self-awareness about the Simpsons. Uh, and, and even going back to before the Simpsons, you know, you look at Matt Groening's comics, there's a self-awareness. There's one from, I believe it was 1982 that I really love. That is uh, two side-by-side panels of, you know, the rabbit and it, it says failure and success. Like one panel says failure, one says success. And everything in the photo is the same. The rabbit looks unhappy. It looks sad. But the chart in the back, one is plummeting and one is going up. And, you know, th- <laughs> there's something to like, you know, that sort of take like that. It, it just all blended into this thing that became what The Simpsons still is. And I think that's really special. Yeah, I think there was an article. I don't know where it was, but there was maybe national. There's no such thing as happiness. And I remember we did a thing on the, and maybe that USA Today parody where there was somebody going to Disneyland or Steve Young was in Disneyland. It just had the same sour expression everywhere. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm at Disneyland now. <laughs> yeah, happy happiness is fleeting, as they say. Yeah. I mean, what What is happiness? I think we all just want to watch right. a good movie, eat food, and be safe. I mean, you know what I mean? What is true happiness, you know? Right. Well, that's where I think I differ from everyone else at this the Simpsons, the Lampoon, and everywhere else. I've always been strongly oriented towards transcendental understanding and, you know, religious, vaguely religious intuitions, Mm. you know. So I've been more serious than the rest of those motherfuckers. (laughs) (laughs) See, Dan, I love that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but it's, it's often expressed itself, manifested itself in extremely annoying (laughs) <laughs> conceited obnoxious behavior so yeah so, i got a, i got a little bit of that also i understand yeah, what do they say you know the best lack all conviction the worst are full of passionate intensity yes you know, so i was in the worst category so, <laughs> so there's that <laughs> no, it's really, it's really great, Dan. I, I relate to that. I'm seeing a kindred spirit a little bit. Um, so let's, let's talk about episodes a little, cause I know we discussed previously, you know, an email and indirect message, like some of the things we wanted to sort of highlight in this. Um, y- your first episode for the show was King size Homer. Um, that's the first draft for the show that you wrote, yeah. uh, an idea pitched by Bill Oakley, I believe. Um, it sounds like you were sort of a fan and you were keeping up with it prior to that, but what was it like to write something like that for the show and for them to be like, Oh, we love it. Come work for the show. What was that like? I, you had been a super fan of the show, had, had tried to break into television very half-heartedly before that. But then when I saw the Simpsons, it's like, wow, this is really doing something special. And I did know Bill Oakley who was at the show at that time. Then he became the show writer. So that was an unbelievable leg up. Right. I wrote a spec script 
to did I knew that he would read because we were old friends, so I had that opportunity. And at that era, this field was not as well known that it existed, you know, and so there wasn't the same and the comedic, ironic sensibility, which has now been promoted through Instagram and everything, but not as widespread. So people that have had a bit of this attitude were in shorter supply. So I wrote a script, you know, on an idea that I just thought of. And because I'm too earnest, it wasn't that great a comic idea. You know, I think it, I think it had something to do, and I could be wrong, with like, oh, the kids being taken away by the city or something like that. Well, it turned out that they had another script that they were working on that that idea might fit in better with. And so they said, well, if we use that idea, we should give you an idea. And so Bill, this idea for King Size Homer, it's just a classic Bill idea that, that and I'm sure he took it from a newspaper clipping of some guy that had gotten obese. <laughs> it was newspaper drive, but that Bill would love that, you know, is very Bill. So I was a trade or recompensation for having chipped in an idea that they liked, but wanted to use for another thing. And then I came out there and they had what was a called like a pitch out meeting, which was an afternoon or a couple afternoons. You know, it was Bill, Josh and George Meyer in the room. And I was just trying to take notes, you know, and I'm not doing that good a job. But I do, <laughs> I, I do remember George pitching out Dr. Nick Rivera's whole speech about like, you know, you're, you know, the, you, you look for the chocolate group, you know, and like <laughs> that, that's your window to wake in. That whole speech by Dr. Nick, George just pitched out, you know, wholesale, you know, and that comes from his love hate relationship with America culture. The amount of times that I've been told like, oh, this joke was George Meyer. And it's like something like that is the, the, the list is getting longer and longer. Well, it should be long. George, you know, was, you know, I want one thing I really wanted to talk about was the correct historical construct through which the show should be understood. Oh, yeah. I will, I'll, I'll take it, Dan. Okay. Let's get it in there. Okay. So here's my thing. If anyone wants to ever do the intellectual history of this show or any show, the important concept to think of is regime, not season, not showrunner, not is to think of the regime. Mm. You know, what is the decision-making leadership structure at different points in the show? And that regime changes. The most notable change, of course, is the change of showrunners. But even amongst showrunners, if you look into it, you'll see, oh, the regime works differently. Like at this point, they're getting a lot of input from the network. At this point, they're not. You know, um, and so I would say that in the first six years that I was at the show, the regime effectively was Bill and Josh and George, then Mike Scully and George. Mm. Those were that was the regime. Jim Brooks was the emperor. <laughs> you know, but he was he was off pacifying or conquering different territories. He he was very much focused on his movie career in the 90s. And he came in and we were like a distant province that had to pay tribute to the emperor once a year. <laughs> <laughs> and we have to do what the emperor says, but he's not in the weeds. Right. You know, he's and so so the regime was with Jim Brooks at an elevated level, and then those showrunners and George. That was the regime in those years. And then Al Jean took over. And, and then there was a new regime as Jim Brooks got more involved. And so, 
you know, so that's really, and then within any regime, you know, there's a, a history, a life pattern, you know, like, oh, the king, there's a new king, he doesn't know how to be king, or learning how to be king or queen. Now they're over being king or queen. <laughs> <laughs> They've lost it, you know, so there's, there's a life cycle within the regimes, mm. you know. Yeah. And that's, and that's interesting. And I, you know, I like that you wanted to highlight that because that's, you know, something that I've, I've known, you know, as a fan of television, but it's something you really learn when you talk to people who write for television and they tell you like, Hey, you know, the person's name on a script does not necessarily in any way speak to why the episode is so good. Because like you said, there's that regime, there's that group of people in these different eras that are, you know, together responsible for the final product being so good. And I think we're to a point where a lot of people understand that, but it's still something that, you know, people are like, Oh, my favorite writer is this person because of that. But there's so many other factors within why those episodes are so good. So I love that. I love that people like to put a spotlight on that. But even apart from even the word necessarily is very important because like, you know, in my, in the episodes I wrote, some of them have, I have very little sense of ownership, but others, I have a strong sense of ownership. So it's even buried. Like, like there was a time at which everybody was saying, well, the, the stated writer had nothing to do with it. It's not that simple. <laughs> you right. know, it's true of some episodes and not true of other episodes. There's a book that I really love uh, called the sleepwalkers, mm. you know, and it's a history of the run up to world war one. And what it does is it's going around looking at all the different decision-making structures in the different countries and treating what they knew and how they worked very specifically. Wow. You know, and, and that's, it really shows you that things, history is made very specifically, you know, by like, who are the people? How is it, how is it working? Yeah. And, you know, that, that I felt it would, if people want to understand something like a show, that sort of approach would give you a, an actual understanding rather than like talking about seasons right. or, or any sort of authorship because the authorship is so variable, you know? So, I mean, if you, if you look at a list of your episodes, I mean, obviously by any standard, regardless of, you know, level of involvement, I mean, it's on some classics. I mean, easily some of my favorites, like I said, King size Homer, summer of four foot two realty bites. I mean, so many episodes that I really love goes on and on. So King size Homer, pure Bill Oakley vision, uh, George Meyer, Josh splashing it up. I I I added some stuff that was really, I think, my own vibe, which was it's Homer being super down. And they cut that out, but but I was <laughs> flattered that George for years used to quote a phrase from my draft, which was, I feel bad about myself. <laughs> it became his his like one of his mantras. Uh, and um then summer of four for two. That was an episode which I feel a great deal of ownership over, not shared ownership, because other people had this archetypal experience to participate in. So I really put out something that I felt was true for me. And then other people, it was true for other people, too. Josh Weinstein, in particular, you know, had a history of going to the Delaware for the summer or something like that and summer houses. And Bill and Josh's summer experiences came into Steve Tompkins, who I... He comes from Massachusetts like me and used to go down to the Cape. He could just get into the hyper-specific details of, you know, the colonial cranberry. 
<laughs> so, so that one was extremely me and extremely other people at the same time. Reality Bites or Realty Bites was pitched by um, Mike Scully mm. as March gets a, you know, job in a real estate company. But he didn't have anything more than that. So this, the premise was Mike. And what it meant to Marge, he like was me. And, you know, my mother always loved real estate. And, you know, it was kind of a looky-loo, nosy, you know. And I don't know, <laughs> so just giving her the this intoxicating experience of being taking it that way. And the murder house was probably my idea too. So Mike's premise, but a couple, you know, good things, a couple of chunks of it, my fingerprints on it. Yeah. Other people do, of course, that yeah. like the, if that's the same episode, I think it ends with, is this the episode that ends with them? Like the electric chair in the, you know, the murder house, which is the episode that ends. Oh no. It's another Mike Skelly idea that I was asked to write, which is when Marge makes Bart be friends with Ralph. Yes. And that was Mike Scully's idea. And somehow they're in the jail at the end and there's an electric chair and somebody's in the electric chair. <laughs> and that was all George and Mike. Like George and Mike were very intoxicated and silly and hilarious with at the end with this climax in the electric chair and, and all that. And so but yeah, so it's a different, I, different episode. I just associate them because they're both Mike's ideas. Yeah. And they both sort of end with like something being like something tense and something being destroyed, like the murder house with the car crash or the, yeah. you know, the, all that. Um, well, the murder house was, yeah, I at least feel some ownership of that. Whereas, well, although I think the, I do think the guy getting his arm cut off, which was <laughs> with the sandwich, that was George. And such a good joke. Yeah. Let me ask you this about King's Eyes Homer. Do you remember? Because I, I made a note of this because I'm just curious. I always love to see how well people remember. Do you remember who pitched the joke? I'm washing my fat guy hat, honey. I have no memory <laughs> of that, but I have a feeling of who that sounds like. Who's that? Bill Oakley. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds like Bill Oakley. Fat guy hat, for sure. Can I take the liberty of just throwing to some other lines that I love from writers? Please, please. So, there's a line. We did this episode. It was, I think it was, I forget whose premise it was, but it was um, that the bark gets a new dog, right? And they get, he gets a super dog. And George wrote the thing, which is like, you know, the finest achievement of the dog maker's art. You know, <laughs> you know which is a funny phrase. But in that episode, the dog is gone and life's going on. And Dan McGrath, who worked at the show for several seasons in the 90s, and Dan was a brilliant guy, is a brilliant guy with a real background in theater and kind of a literary vibe and also, a, you know, a nut. Um, <laughs> but he said, you know, Bart needs to feel remorse for what he's done. Bart needs to, you know, regret this thing. And that it was kind of soulless for Bart not to. So it's a 100% true emotional point. And then Dan pitched that Bart imagines a steamship going to England. <laughs> and the captain says to the boiler man, shovel on more dogs, Lumley, for a great year. We shan't make Wimbledon by noonfall. And Dan said we needed that scene and pitched every word in that scene. And that scene, to me, bore wide fruits. Like that is John Oliver's 
entire career is implied by that scene, <laughs> you know, which is the distillation of all of England into a phantasmic cocktail of ridiculousness. Wimbledon, a ship is going to Wimbledon. <laughs> what is noonfall? Noonfall isn't a thing. Like, you know, but it seems like English people might have it, you know, (laughs) (laughs) so it's this conceptual explosion of Englishness into an uh, absurd collage of pieces, you know, and that was Dan McGrath's pitch. And I always felt like, huh, like that, that take of of things being this compressed cocktail of all their parts in absurdly re I guess it's, you know, postmodern in a sense that he's participating in like the postmodern moment of the eighties, nineties, yeah. but to turn it into comedy, you know, maybe somebody else did it somewhere else, but you know, it seemed, it seemed pretty rad to me. Yeah. It's all these ideas, you know, all these associations with a thing put into a blender and turned into a joke that, you know, I would, it's, it maybe not be the funniest joke in the episode, but it might be, it really does bring the point of that episode to the forefront. I think that's really great. It brings it just, it destroyed England. <laughs> that joke, that joke turned England into a joke. It turned all English affectations and presumptions and the whole thing into a, into a shtick, a, a meaningless, like I said, Hey, England, you're, by the way, England, you're a ridiculous shtick. Here you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Not I, a bad blow for an Irish American. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> well, I, I believe it was Josh Weinstein who said on a commentary for, I think it was my sister, my sitter, that, that you sort of specialize in writing scripts from uh, the perspective of a kid. Do you think that that's true? And if so, why? I would say that I specialized in writing scripts from the perspective of me. Mm. And that, that I think a lot of people look to comedy, people look to the culture, and I look always to the depth of my own experience and try and get in touch with. So in that scene, you know, well, first off, that, that episode with Bill and Josh pitched a lot, but... And, but for me, what I would have wanted to do, and I think that Josh and I really shared an aspiration for that episode to make Lisa an actual kid. Mm. So for me, it was always to look into like, what is the authentic thing that was going on? And so like a line that I did write that I, that I think Josh loved and might've been thinking of that was they go to the museum, they go to the new museum and coming out of the museum, Homer is super hopped up. Like he's like a kid who had a ton of sugar. And he says to Marge, Marge, um, they said not to touch the tire, but we touched. No, he, you know, he, he says, he says something like this. He said, they said not to touch it, but we did touch it. And then we ran around and hid in a giant tire. And my friend was there. <laughs> <laughs> and that sort of breathless kid logic was something. It's not because I loved kidness, but I loved truthness right you know and so i pitched that out of remembering that ex- intoxicated kid feeling and i think josh really related to that because you know he you know he's panicked it's you know it's whatever we get it so <laughs> so but in various things you know like a line that the sort of line that i would often pitch you know was kind of like like homer like i picked some stuff later where homer was not 100 percent clear if he was him or Clark Griswold. <laughs> and, 
And it wasn't meant to be a reference to culture or anything like that. It was actually about my own noticing sometimes that when you wake up in the morning, there's a moment before your personality kicks in. Yeah, totally. You know, it's like, oh, I'm this guy. And like Homer being a little unsure which guy he is. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that sort of issue always interested me. Um, can I can I quote one more line of mine? That, Please. That I Dan, you quote all the lines you want. Okay, a line of mine that I felt was really like coming from my concerns was at some point, Bart is going to, there's something to do with a wedding registry. And, and we need, the line was for Bart, we need Bart to say something showing that he's now understanding the concept of a wedding registry. So I don't even know if this went in the script. I think it did, but probably came out. My pitch was, you know, various people had like, so you, you tell them what you want, you get a little, you know, various, very, you know, matter of fact right. explanation. And my version was, wait, wait, you're telling me that me gets presents from not me? <laughs> and that the fundamental thing in the world is self-other. And like that, the Bart's understanding was backed up at that level. <laughs> it's so good. I mean, and, and that's the thing, you know, we talk about, you know, writing from a sincere place or writing from the perspective of a kid. Some of the best stories ever in the show are from personal experiences. I mean, I've said this so many times on the podcast. In fact, I said it in the last episode, people that listen to this are so sick of me saying it, but I think my favorite episode of the show period is Marge Be Not Proud. And I think the reason that story is so resonant is because it comes from a real experience that Mike had. It's inspired by him stealing a, you know, a 45 record. And I think that we see that time and time again in the show where that leads to some of the best jokes and stories. Well, I love that episode. I actually am a little afraid of that episode because it starts feeling of shame for me for my own crimes. Uh, <laughs> Tell me about a crime, Dan. I'll take a crime. I can't. I'm too ashamed. <laughs> I, I dragged my sisters into it. My poor sisters. We were little. We were very little, seven or eight. But, you know, it was bad. Um, <laughs> stealing school supplies. Mm. Um, but uh, I was so glad when the store that we did it at went out of business. Like, okay, the record is gone. <laughs> um, but it was my fault, not my sister's. I was the bad one. But there is a line in that episode that I do think is kind of more, from my perspective, it is the line I contributed, which was, it's the store's fault for making me want it so much. <laughs> right. so, that was always more sort of my perspective, was looking more at, you know, the psychological, you know, existential side of things. Totally. And I, and I like that because, I you know, I noticed this in myself, you know, and I love the ridiculous, wacky episodes, but I think the reason I relate to and love episodes like March Be Not Proud so much and Summer of Four Foot Two and things like that is because I can put myself in that situation. They feel, you know, when a, when a show like The Simpsons can not only make you laugh, but affect you emotionally, that's like a special place. That's like a special thing about the show. And it's those episodes that are sincere and a little bit relatable that really do that more than just make you laugh. So I, I do enjoy that. I agree. Um, there's an episode that I wrote that people seem to have forgotten about, but I love and it was the iDobot episode. Oh, yeah. Now, I have a confession to make that the idea that Homer was inside the robot was actually <laughs> pitched by David Cohen. Wow. I, I was going to do, I, I wanted to do a Robot Wars episode, and David pitched, 
And it's like, that is the key. It's a beautiful idea. And thank you, David. But David, you have you had David on? Not yet. I would love to get David on. He's, uh, wow. he's probably going to be busy with that new Futurama right. stuff. But, you know, his contribution to The Simpsons, you know, like Poochie, you know, Kang and Kodos, the election Kang and Kodos, like some, some wonderful, wonderful thing. And I think he had a lot to do with the thing that I was most regretting not to be part of, which was the Planet of the Apes, the musical. I had, mm. I was not in the room that day. Mm. You know, I was banished for being annoying, I'm sure. <laughs> so the there's a little, like the emotional truth that, there's two things in that episode that I really love. One was that uh, I don't know how much we survived in this episode, but that the commentators on the robot war knew that there was something horrible about their love of seeing this violence. <laughs> like that there was something that there was a deep spiritual malaise that was going on there. And that that was how I was feeling. It was a bad time in my life. And so like I was thinking like they like how bad humanity is. <laughs> like there the, the robot war commentators needing to see this violence <laughs> like, was uh and the other thing that I thought was fun about that episode was that Homer didn't get better. Like when he got hurt, he stayed hurt. Yeah. You know, which is uncartoony and right. kind of shocking. Like at, at dinner, he passes out, I think, from loss of blood. <laughs> it kind of goes back to that whole Bart the Daredevil, that early like aspect of like, no, when he's hurt, he's really hurt. So I do I do like that about it. Well, I like the stakes being or like a little like playing seriousness as part of what's on the table always appealed to me. Sure. So that um the other thing I would say about that episode is that the episode was directed by Lauren McMullen. It's the only Simpsons episode she did. She's an uh, unbelievably talented director who worked for Pixar and many other things. And it's a be- visually beautiful episode. I mean, the regular team is very un- unbelievably great, but Lauren had just one episode as her canvas and she did. It's a beautiful vision. It, so It really is. And I mean, even, you know, anyone listening that hasn't watched that episode, even if you're too young to remember Robot Wars, uh, go watch it. It's a really good episode, a very interesting premise in that episode. And as someone old enough to remember that show makes it a little bit funnier. <laughs> I gotta say. And it's a classic. I mean, the emotional story is super real, which is Homer fails Bart. Yeah. And Homer needs to make it up to Bart. Right. And that's a story that we told since I don't know if we you know told it before, but but it's it's a fundamentally emotionally true story. Right. You know, that any anybody who's who's ever failed anybody can can relate to. Nah, I def- definitely, you know, I'm, I'm always slacking on making like a list of, you know, more modern, which I guess at this point, it's not even modern, but you know, episodes beyond a certain point that are truly great. And I would, I'd put that on the list. Um, so I know there's gotta be someone that hasn't seen it that should watch it. It's very funny. It's it's funny and it's, it's beautiful and it's got a, it's got an emotional core, but it's very, very strong because Homer fails Bart and he has to make it up to him. And that's why he's hanging in there while he's, being killed <laughs> like we really don't he, you know he, we're not taking it easy on homer no can i well as long as we're on the subject of like pushing the the hardness button like let's make things hard now this is probably controversial but screw it gotta um get it out there dan let it yeah. out so the frank grimes episode yes okay so I don't a, know, a, a personal favorite of mine I don't know what Bill and Josh's recollection is, but, and so they were probably 
dispute this. And they're authoritative. But, <laughs> uh, but my recollection was that at The Simpsons, when I was at The Simpsons, I actually one day went in there and said, like, Homer's everything that's wrong with America. Like, you know, Homer's, Homer, like, what are we doing here? We're promoting this bad. And I remember Bill Oakley saying to me, yeah, but Homer's our guy. Like, yeah, we love Homer. And I had made this annoying sort of moralistic, overly earnest thing. But, I, you know, and then down from Bill and Josh comes this episode of a, a guy who makes that point, whose name starts with GR. <laughs> and it's kind of a humorless guy. And I felt like seen. No. <laughs> <laughs> felt truly understood in that moment. I felt understood. Okay, finally. <laughs> and then I'm reading the episode. I'm like, everything's going wrong for Frank Grimes. I'm like, what? Nobody likes Frank Grimes. What? And um, so it's felt funny. I don't think that they think that it was consciously aimed at or based at me, but I certainly felt like targeted. <laughs> and so then as we were watching the episode, working on the episode, I did pitch and really kind of argue for that he had to die. Yeah. Like once, okay, fine. You know, <laughs> if we're doing it, let's do it. And so I was a big proponent of killing Frank Grimes. Um, and uh, I, I think that was the right call. I think it makes the episode even funnier. It allows Homer to insult him at his funeral, which is my favorite joke in the episode. <laughs> it had to be done. It's, the point of the episode is that life is not fair. Right. You know, and that Frank Grimes is a good man and a deserving man, but Homer's our guy. Homer's our you guy. Know? Homer's <laughs> so, our guy. And, and yeah, and then all those lines and like, you know, change the channel, Marge. And, you know, <laughs> like that's brute, like that was probably George. I don't remember who, who pitched, but it could have been other people like Dan McGrath who was there, you know, so um, because I identified with Frank and then I felt like, okay, I guess Frank was wrong. Okay, well, let's kill Frank. <laughs> <laughs> In a very gruesome way, you know, uh, I, I, and I think that that makes, you know, everything about the character more interesting. If Frank were just someone that you saw around ongoing, it would, it would sort of ruin that. I love that Homer drives him insane so quickly, which is why I love that episode. That's that's perfect. Well, so you also wrote, uh, Bart to the future. Uh, A lot of people love to make references to this for Simpsons predictions, which I'm very adamant about saying don't exist. When smart people make enough jokes, uh, some of them are going to come true. Uh, we hear about some guy named uh, Donald Donald Trump. I've never heard of. I don't. I don't think hey, we've heard of him since. Thing. Here's <laughs> the thing: the Simpsons can't see the future. I can. It's not <laughs> joke. That's why everybody else on the show goes, "Well, it's a coincidence." It's like, yeah, yeah, it was a coincidence. Like, it was a coincidence. <laughs> yeah, of course, it was a coincidence that I said this thing that was right. Like, of course, that's how you see it. You know, uh, they can't handle it. Yeah, no. See, so Dan, Dan is the time traveler. So we're cracking that case, but yeah, that's, that's the fact check, you know? Um, but you know, Donald Trump, I mean, we, I don't remember how that name came into the show, so I can't claim it was my pitch. <laughs> probably me. Yeah, uh, yeah probably, probably. I'll give Dan, I'm giving Dan credit. It's Dan. But Dan. George, George hated that episode. Um, and um, he fought it pretty hard. He did insist on, the, he also contributed a lot of great stuff to it, like the Indian casino, that that's how they get the vision. Right. And the whole Lincoln's gold story, <laughs> story for Homer. But the basic point, again, coming from my excessively 
earnest, stupid perspective, unfunny, earnest perspective. <laughs> but how are things going to work out for Bart? You know, and I didn't think they were necessarily going to work out that good. And I thought that that was worth looking into. And some people were into it and some people were not, you know, and the, the animators, there was kind of a rebellion. You know, we got this design of Bart where he had these bags under his eyes and a little ponytail and he looked bad. And I loved it. It's like, yes, this is the vision. And but then they did not love it. Because Bart is the, our guy, and, and this can't be what happens to Bart. And, <laughs> and so they gave Bart this like adorable beach house with like a demon buggy. I'm like, no, 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 come on, no, that wouldn't make any sense. Yeah, and so, so it was. A, I did not. The only Bart's design was the only battle I won. But like, there is a line in there where you know, Bart's living with Ralph, and Bart chews out Ralph for putting milk in the refrigerator because the beer it made the beer not get. Come on, Ralph. Our refrigerator, our mini fridge only makes so much coldness, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that everything needed to be fixed with a, pa- with a paper clip, you know, was very much the vision. And anyway, it was divisive and George was not necessarily on favor, but other writers had points of reference that they knew people like this. They are people like this. We're all some of this in us. Sure. And so, so other people chipped in things that really made it better, particularly Carolyn Omine, who comes from Hawaii and knew a lot of sort of beachy sort of guys that, you know, claim to have invented harbor tours. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a, I am a huge fan of Carolyn Omine. She's been on the show. Uh, one of my favorite writers on the show. So shout out to Carolyn. Yeah. yeah I think that uh, the portrait of Bart, she had a big influence on the, you know, it's like, yes, this guy exists. <laughs> <laughs> It's great. It's great. I mean, you know, outside of the, you know, the, the Donald Trump prediction, which I mean, come on, it's not really a prediction, you know, uh, Donald Trump was this solution to a story problem, you know, which was who's going to screw up America badly enough for Lisa to have a trouble, a problem. Right. So, So that's what his role was. But I will say this. I wrote another movie. I wrote a movie with friends at the time. Donald Trump was the villain in that too. <laughs> like, like, so I had Donald Trump on my mind as like this uniquely villainous figure. And, but I thought he was a comical villain. You know, I thought his grandiosity and his narcissism were his traits. Right. You know, I did not perceive or not close enough observer to see the other, the, the racism. Right. And um, cruelty. Right. <laughs> I didn't get it, you know. I mean, who who would have known? I mean, come on, this guy hosted The Apprentice. You know, he was like just sort of a dumbass. None of us thought that he would have the the unfortunate negative impact that he has had on anything. I thought he was like a P.T. Barnum-esque figure, right? Like, if you told me Donald Trump as president, what are we going to do? I would say, well, there's going to be a Trump airport here and a Trump airport there and a Trump fountain there, and he's going to build giant gilded monuments to himself. I did not think you know, it would be what it was. No, not that I voted for. I certainly didn't vote for him. No, definitely not. No, but uh, I mean, no no one with a brain thought he would actually win, but you know, we'll, we can. Yeah. Yeah. I I thought there was no chance. So, I mean, here, but here we are. Yeah. So he was just a solution to a story problem. He, you know, like, yeah, like his his clownishness seemed funny. And um, in the movie I wrote, he was called Ted Titan. (laughs) And the movie that I wrote my friend, Jeff Pollock with, called My Bad Self. And uh, this guy is like, you know, not happy with his life. 
and he sees a ad where he's like, hey, we'll make you your best self. He goes, you know, what they do is they turn him into two people, one who's <laughs> all good and pure and wonderful, and one who's all his negative traits in his libido. And the two of them walk out of this clinic, and the good version says, wow, I feel amazing. Let's go help the poor. And the bad version hits him over the head with a trash can and steals his wallet <laughs> <laughs> and runs off. And, and within three days, the bad version is Donald Trump slash Ted Titan's best friend. Wow. And, and then within a day, he has him uh, in drugs in, in a cage. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, sounds pretty on par with who, who he actually is. He goes, yeah, the bad goes for it. He, like the, the Ted Titan Trump figure was, char- was, you know, charmed, but it's like, okay, but you just let a monster in, you know? So, Wow. I anyway. mean, it's yeah, very, very on brand for him. <laughs> uh, well, Dan, so something else I want to highlight, and I'm sure that you know the 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 Trump prediction uh, is one of a few things that that people will always credit back to you because of that episode. But another thing, and this is something I really think you deserve a lot of credit for, is you are credited with creating the word embiggen, uh, which is now in the Webster's Dictionary as of 2018. Uh, how surprised were you by that? Well. You know, what really surprised and really actually satisfied me was to find out that you could say technically I had recreated it because um, when people really dug into this, they found a prior use in some frontier newspaper in the <laughs> 1860s. And I have not read wow. the frontier newspapers of the 1860s. <laughs> but the task was to coin the sort of thing that people then might have said, <laughs> you know? Right. So, you know, I felt like, well, we got that right. Like, you know, that, you know, it's sad that there was a precursor, but on the other hand, it was like, well, it, on a larger point shows you the mis- you know, the mystery of intuition and empathy. You sort of just could think that they might've thought that way. Right. You know, and, and I think, in our ear right now, this that side of, of the writing process, there's an emphasis on, you know, people having particular experiences, which is relevant. People's life experiences, people's beings are very relevant. But there's an aspect of human nature, which is universal and intuitive, that's there too, you know, and can sometimes make leaps into other people and situations, right. you know. So that, you know... I, that that was satisfying. I did. It was a little annoying that it existed. <laughs> well, like you said, make the best of it. Make the best of it. Like you said, it, it really affirms that you tapped into the right era for that joke. I mean, if you were gonna. I mean, who would have ever assumed that had been used previously? It's certainly not a word people were using. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and I think, you know, the correct word thing would be like reinventing or something. You right. know, because certainly it was not in use it had been coined and forgotten <laughs> uh, the other the other battle i was fighting or is uh with cromulent you know with my friend david cohen who i love and admire you know he he pitched cromulent like a perfectly cromulent word and then and then i would see like wait a second cromulent's getting more google searches than a big god damn it david cohen <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, um, that stuff. I'm gonna I'm gonna say I'm team Embiggen. I think cromulet is funny, but I think Embiggen is a funnier word. And I'm gonna chalk it up to lateral thinking. I mean, I I trust that that you know purely came out of your brain. The thing that bothers me is that my iPhone still underlines it red as if it's not a word. I mean, come on, iPhone, it's in the dictionary. Well, I think maybe I should be on the board of Apple. <laughs> maybe you should. So it's, it's stockholders rebellion, like <laughs> you know. Yeah, stop underlining that word, Red. It's really stop great. underlining that word. It's Damn a real Apple. word. Damn it! Let's get it. Let's 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 make it not try to correct me into something else like it does. I love it. I that. love it. If any of your, um, you know, fans want to start that movement, you know, I'll, let's do it. Dan, don't get me fired up. I'll start it today. Let's do uh, it. Let's, yeah. let's do it. Let's let's let's, let's let's definitely make that happen. I'll, hey, let's I'll, keep Cromulent red. <laughs> <laughs> keep Cromulent red. Let's get a let's get a fucking petition going to get Embiggen to be properly recognized by Apple. I'm totally yeah. on board with that. Yeah. Um, well, Dan, I, I want to ask you as we sort of like get you know we're getting to a pretty reasonable stopping point here. Sure. Uh, as someone who's been writing for the show for you know over 20 years, and we sort of talked about this throughout the episode, what do you think has really made it last? Why do you think it's still on today? Well. Um, I think it's a combination of factors, but, you know, I think underlying it all is a sincere aspiration to create something beautiful. Mm. And I think, you know, the people, everyone, the people that established the show, you know, Sam Simon, Jim Brooks, Matt Groening, they did so with a high aspiration. And, you know, and you look at the music that they chose, like Danny Elfman's music yeah. and how fantastic it You look at the orchestration of that music you know the use of a real orchestra you look at and there was this ambition and i think it you know comes from brooks who set this tone of being ambitious and doing something wonderful you know in different ways with you know embracing popular culture i don't think brooks was super steeped in you know big max and what you know with the whole <laughs> evil can evil of it i think underlying running it through all it's just been this real sincere desire to do like the best thing ever and, well, as Bill Oakley once said, you know, you got to go for the goal, you know, and I do think the standard that was established in the early years has led the people who have come later to continue to aspire for the goal, to go for the goal, to try and do something wonderful, not always succeeding, but, but I think it can be felt. Yes. You know, yeah, I think people feel it. No, that's, that's very well said. And I mean, you know, I, as, as a, as an advocate for all eras of the Simpsons, you know, again, another thing I say constantly nonstop is, you know, they're all, every era of the Simpsons has its own qualities that you can appreciate in it. They're all, they're all different. They're all unique. They're all great in their own way. They're not, you know, you can't, you can't directly compare season three to season 27. You just, I mean, there's, there's things that you're going to love or feel differently about throughout the entire show, which in no way means that the quality is less than it's just different. And so I, I, I think people like you that still work on the show, it's a testament to that. You know, can I speak up for a more modern show I, that I please, truly love? Please. I mean, I love many of the recent shows. Um, but one that really resonated for me, and I don't know if it's recent anymore, because who knows the, what the past, I don't know what year it is. Um, <laughs> I only know the future. I don't know the present. That's true. Yeah. Um, we got to remember Dan is traveling through time. He's not always keeping up with the, the, the past. future. It's the, the future. Is, um, but <laughs> the book job, mm. the book job, which was written by Matt Werberton, I believe, and uh, under the supervision of Matt Selman. And I felt very identified with it because 
essentially it's a treatment of what it is to be a writer. Right. And, and there's when Homer hears about young adult fiction and they start treating, wait, they treat writing as a caper, a crime that can be pulled off. You know, <laughs> and it's like, you just round up the guys and you write a book, you know, and then Lisa, you know, is so horrified by this that she's going to try and write a sincere thing. And of course it goes nowhere. And like, I remember Bart or Homer saying to him, wait, you're all the guys. You know? <laughs> and, you know, that's about, you know, it's a self defense. It's a somewhat defensive episode, justifying this very compromised approach we've taken of writing collaboratively for a commercial medium. Right. But, you know, it, it has been fun. We did get it. We do get the, it done. If we sat at home with our novels, other people might be able to write novels. I don't know. I think we might go to Lisa route. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it was kind of a, a humorous defense of our lives, you know, in this series. And I thought it was also fun. You know, it's a good caper. It's, you know, when Bart is saying this, this better not be like Kansas city or whatever. <laughs> it's not going to be Kansas city. You know, it's snappy. It's fun. It's serious. So that's one of many episodes in the last in the most recent years that I think were wonderful or like, you know, Lisa, the Buddhist or whatever, you know, so, so I think there are classic episodes throughout the history of the show. Absolutely. Yeah. No, absolutely. And definitely anyone hasn't watched the book job. If you haven't watched I Dobot, which I believe is what it's called. If you haven't watched I Dobot, if you haven't watched, uh, are you a job. fan? Are you are you a Simpsons? Why are you watching this podcast if you haven't watched iDobot? This is this is a very good question from Dan. If you are one of these people, uh, I still love you, but if you're one of these people that pretends <laughs> that you don't like Beyond Season Blank, uh, grow up. I mean, go go. You know, take a chance and watch a different season. And it's grow very. Um, but I would say that that is <laughs> is dare I say a sophomoric attitude. It and is. And that the attitude that the show's production is so variable, the factors that bear on each episode, that that that's just going to be very over simple, you know, because you know the quality of an episode depends on what the idea somebody came in with, what how how good able people were to make it as good as it could be, yeah. you know, and and that's very variable, and so um, I think a an even handed treatment of the show would find classic episodes, you know, in every year. Truly peppered throughout. I mean, that's, that's perfectly said because again, you know, a, an example I give often, uh, there's things that might not have worked as well in the end product, but they were probably really funny on the page and some things are just going to change. Uh, over the course of a thing. So don't, you know, as I always say, if you watch an episode and you don't love it, watch the next episode, you know, um, there's always going to be that. Right. And or look at a list of, find somebody that you like their taste. Cause they're just, they're just all, they're scattered here and there. Now, like there's an era of the show that I think was controversial, um, which was kind of like season nine and 10. And um, when the ideas got a lot of conspiracy theories and a lot I love that stuff. You know, Me my too. basic take is George was going crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and we went with him and it was fun. You know, like we'd done all the other stuff, you know. Uh, so Saddle Sword Galactica, when they got the second horse and the, the jockeys in the underground tree, you know, or the, the monkeys working in the mine, the diamond <laughs> mine. Like I loved all those episodes. They're not everybody's favorite. No. But well, 
And I will say this for Salisbury Galactica, and I don't. I had Tim Long on. I don't remember if I told him this in the episode, but uh, I, I'm not. There are things about that episode that I don't love, but I do believe it has a couple jokes that are timeless and truly perfect in that episode. So even if you don't love some of the premise, I mean, come on, it, it's you have you have so many episodes of this show to watch. I think you can get past that. Oh wait, I have to take credit for something else before we're on that time. Please, there's the episode where. Um, the kids are on an island. This is Lord of the Flies episode. Yep. And the end of that episode. Well, the ending of that episode, I pitched the ending of that episode. And then George pitched a better version. <laughs> so the final line, like, was probably George's line. But the idea that it, there's suddenly a narrator who wraps up the story with a, no interest in how it actually wound up. I pitched a version of that. And then that was, then that was revised. <laughs> so, so the basic... So I guess you could say I was already on board with the idea of kind of blowing off some of the, <laughs> the basic responsibilities of storytelling. And I can see why an audience might think that man should not be allowed near a show <laughs> if, if he thinks that that you don't owe the audience. But I also felt like the audience, come on, you don't need a story. <laughs> Do you really still? Well, and, and what I will say for that is, there are things about that. Like sometimes, I mean, you're still going to get the sincerity. You're still going to get episodes that are, that are, you know, not as, as, you know, throw up, the, throw up your hands kind of episodes. But one of those every now and again feels good. I think it breaks up that sincerity in a way that I like. So I, I don't understand people that get hung up on that because if it were truly canon, they would all be, a, they would all be much older. You can't, you, right. you got to let some stuff go. Right. In that episode, I totally agree with people that said, you know, that's a dangerous drug. And we sure. took a little bit of it then of like blowing off narrative, blowing off. But on the other hand, you know, you got to take a little taste, like, you know, and you got back, you know, we got back to earth pretty soon. For sure. You know? So I do think there's something to be said for the grounded episodes, but there's something to be said for these, you know, more ridiculous ones. Absolutely. And I mean, we wouldn't have certain things if we didn't lean into that. We wouldn't have Frank Grimes. We wouldn't have these kind of things if we didn't let it get a little wild. So, I mean, I think that that is a quality that should also be appreciated and not just, you know, compared to the other. Can I tell you my theory of why I never was asked to run the show? I would love to hear your theory. Well, Mike Scully was running the show and, you know, at some point he's going to leave. So maybe he was. So I was put in charge of a room once or twice. and. So maybe that could be considered a tryout. And I was so, so, so keen to do the most wonderful, special, great job imaginable that like I just had to take things too far, I think. And so at one point, there was the work in this episode where they go to Vegas, Homer and Ned go to Vegas to get these new ways. Oh, yeah. And they are running through a casino. Now, I was supposed to rewrite this scene. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. What casino? It can't just be a casino. And and so I said, you know what? Let's make it a Christmas themed casino. You know? <laughs> and nobody wanted a Christmas themed casino. Nobody asked for a Christmas themed casino. <laughs> and so like that was giving them, I think I was just going too far. But I was like, oh, if I don't go here, I'm not giving giving them enough. Right. And there was another scene when I was asked to write the room. I remember adding the scene. I don't remember the story, but I said, oh, well, there needs to be something else going on here. <laughs> and I and I 
put this thing where everybody in the town was kind of hanging out in helicopters, like up in the clouds, just like fishing and hanging out. <laughs> a lot of people, they were kind of using helicopters like you might use a trailer. Right. You know? <laughs> just like people. And, and no, that was not what anybody was looking for. But, you know, I was just trying to give people value for their money. That was my, my feeling. Dan, Dan was just going in swinging hard. Maybe, maybe swinging too hard for some people. Swinging too hard. I was swinging too hard. That was it. <laughs> well, I mean, we're seeing people, you know, so one thing I like to point out is, you know, we have a lot of newer, younger writers on the show now too, that are taking some pretty big swings. You know, I love seeing episodes like I Columbus, uh, yeah. really stand out. I, I love all the stuff that Cesar is doing. Uh, so, you know, I, I think maybe they just, maybe you were ahead of your time, Dan. They just weren't ready for those big swings. Well, I did pitch to Matt Selman the idea that we should do a very special new season of the show. Mm. That was a dramatic story mm. told in the style of a true crime thing. It okay. was six episodes and that we had a dramatic tone. Just say it is all. Then along comes this other, this episode, this two episode. Uh, a serious Flanders might be what you're referring to, Dan. <laughs> it might be what I'm referring to. It might very well be. <laughs> so, 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 I mean, there you go. That's a testament to how much da- even Dan's DNA uh, is in a lot of these ideas. And that's, you know, it comes back to what we talk about with like the regime and all these different people being so, you know, all the contributions making it what it is. And I think that also comes back to your answer about why the show is still around. So I, I think that's all really great, Dan. Right. Right. And absolutely. Like in like a serious plan, like, you know, I certainly didn't pitch anything with a Cone brothers reference and I can see, Oh, well that structure, you know, took an idea that was like, oh, I had an impulse. Like, oh, we should do something totally very different with a different shape, you know, but, but giving that, that Cone brothers thing made that more doable. Right. You know, like it took it from like being a sort of a a notion to being, oh, this is something you can execute, you know? So yeah, it's, you know, everybody, every piece of matters. Well, we're, you know, so, so we got two petitions to start, Dan. We're going to start one to get in big and properly recognized by Apple. And we're going to start another one to get an actual little mini season. That is all one story like that. Even if it's not true crime, I love the idea of that. I love the idea of a six part story. That's what I wanted to do was, was like have it, I guess the, there's all these complexities with like people's contracts. They're only contracted to do so many episodes, whatever. Solve that. <laughs> pay them more. Pay them is more. That Come on. Just pay, them, pay more. them more. What I would see is like, hmm, well, take them what they get, give them six more of those. <laughs> right. <laughs> and we're done. Right. But, um, I agree. You know, we see further than others. What can we? It's just. Yeah, I mean, come on. I, you know, Dan is in the future. I'm, I'm, I'm working on being the sidekick for that. And <laughs> you know, we're, we're just we're learning a lot. But I, you know, I, I think that's all really great perspective, Dan. I love. I think we've seen a lot of great credit taken today. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of great credit taken today. That's a what of, I like. A lot of really good gra- credit grabs today. Good, good grabs. Good grabs, guys. <laughs> Hey, that's what, you know, that is one thing. Uh, and I mean, you gave your share of credit to multiple other people, Dan. So that, that's well, really the, the thing I do want, where I really would love to say is writers that aren't always mentioned, but they, their contributions I loved, you know, and, and they're like Ken Keeler, who used to pitch ideas that were, that would be intoxicating, like just because they were so original. I remember a Ken Keeler line where Homer, I forget 
somebody had, Homer bought a hat, I think. It was something about Homer buying a hat. And, and so the line was like last time Homer bought like a deer stalker hat or something, but somebody made fun of it and he closed down his detective agency. <laughs> <laughs> and then buried into the episode, buried into this little joke was a whole story where Homer had a detective agency. Like, and Ken would do things like that. Or so Chase good. Richdale, who pitched the Grease some story that we did in a little room and he pitched Homer's eye getting sucked out by the vacuum cleaner. Wow. And I remember Jace would turn red from laughing. He would go into some sort of deoxygenated state. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I just wanted to, I came on with the goal of mentioning more people and what I did was take a lot of credit. Well, and and, and, you know, Dan, (laughs) that, that just gives us a reason to do a part two. So we'll, we'll, we'll dig into some more stuff. I'll bring you back on. Um, and this has just been an absolute blast, man. So I want to thank you for, you know, taking, taking the time for, you know, coming on and and just giving me these stories. And, and again, we will, we'll have to do it again. I think we have to make time for that. I look next time. Talk about other people. Yeah, we'll talk about other people. Well, before plus additional credit grabbing, right? Right. Well, we got to find time to grab more credit. We got to work on the petition in between, so we'll have to talk about that. Petition, the petitions, very the petitions are coming. But uh, before we actually close it up, though, do you have any shout outs or plugs? Whether it's new episodes, other projects, anything else you're doing that you want to tell people to check out? I have a project. You know, I have a vision. You know, I had a vision many years ago that that isolation, alienation, and indifference to each other were toxins that were killing our society. Sure. (laughs) And so I have a little project that I have been working on to help people have a little bit more friendly attitude to the people around them. Mm. It's like kind of like next door, but it's meant to be smaller and cozier and nicer, you know, it enables a person to, to sort of pick a little corner of the world and sort of be the host of it. Wow. Um, It's an app right now. It's called Bailiwick. Yeah, and it's like the word Bailiwick, B-A-I-L-W-I-K. There's no C, and um, because it wants to be like Wikipedia, and that name has given us no end of trouble, you know. (laughs) But it means like area of responsibility. But when we, when I was picking the name for this, I ran it past Kevin Curran, and Kevin Curran is the guy who wrote. If you see the very first top ten list, Kevin Curran wrote that, and the very first top ten list is an explosion of the idea that there should be top 10 lists and that there's any order to the universe. <laughs> you know, it's very rad. He was extremely rad, profound, funny guy, but he had deep insight to sure. underlie a, a comedy with really edgy comedy. And Kevin, I said, what do you think? And Kevin said, it's strong. And so I said, that's it. It's settled. And I, and, and I've had like, you know, haters all right call them what they are haters <laughs> uh push back on that but i felt like nobody outranks kevin there you know you so that's what it is but if anybody was interested that's a project that is a you know it's you know like i before because i've always been earnest you know and what worked in journalism it's kind of goes back to those roots awesome you know? That's great. Yeah, Bailiwick. Everybody check that out. I'll I'll gladly put a link to that in the description of the episode. I'll try to try to remember to get that in there. I'll make Thank a note. And uh, that'll be awesome. You know, it, it's been great, Dan. Like I said, we'll have to get you back on. Thank you. It's a privilege. It's a privilege. And what a fun conversation. And um, thank you for supporting uh, the work in such uh, in empathetic and insightful way. Oh, that that 
Dan, that means more to me than than you know. So I, I look forward to episode two. Uh, as for all of you, if you have any questions or comments, you can email me at simpsonsisgreat at gmail.com. If you like this podcast, consider leaving me a review on Apple or honestly anywhere that accepts reviews. You can do it on Spotify, anywhere. Go leave a review. Uh, you can follow the official Instagram account at simpsonsisgreaterthan or on Twitter at simpsonsisgreat. If you're curious about me or my Simpsons collection, just search for Bart of Darkness on Instagram or Twitter. And I'll see everybody later. Thank you. Thank you so much.